Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this happy Sabbath day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray that you would speak through us this morning, that your words would be heard and not ours. We love you. Amen. We're standing up here today not because we are good, but because God is good. And he has been good and faithful to us. We feel compelled to praise him for that. This is a difficult story to share for a couple reasons. It's very personal, and it's also very emotional. It is a continuing journey. I would like to say that it's all neatly wrapped up and in, in, in the past, but it's not. And so um, you will probably see some tears. I, I prayed that I wouldn't, but it's just reality. So we have learned that repeating aloud of God's goodness helps build our faith. And um, so here we are. God's goodness to us has been different than the goodness that I usually, or maybe we usually think of God. When we think of God's goodness, we often think of Psalm 37, 4, that he will give us the desires of our hearts, right? Or Psalm 21, 2, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Or even James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. But as I have reacquainted myself with the promises of God lately, I've actually found that most of them don't promise the desires of your heart or that you will get what you want when you want it. The vast majority talk of a God who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A God that will sustain us as we cast our burdens on him. A God who will uphold us and that the righteous will never be forsaken. Through our experience, we have been introduced to a God who has shown his goodness, not by giving us our version of good and perfect gifts, but through disappointment, loss, sickness, and an uncertain future. And if we had not walked through this valley of the shadow of death, we wouldn't have the experience of God proving his promises of being our refuge and our fortress, of upholding us and never forsaking us. And this experience has taught us the importance and necessity of an abiding and continual surrender on, to God, waiting on him to make all things beautiful in his time, and placing our full confidence in a God who is faithful, and looking back to see how he has worked and trusting that he will continue to work in the future. We know that uh, in a room this size, there are a lot of stories of, of loss, um, pain, sorrow, disappointments. Um, in fact, in uh, Christ Object Lessons, page 33, it says, None who receive God's word are exempt from difficulty and trial. But when affliction comes, the true Christian does not become restless, distrustful, or despondent. Though we cannot see the definite outcome of affairs or discern the purpose of God's providences, we are not to cast away our confidence. Remembering the tender mercies of the Lord, we should cast our care upon him and with patience wait for his salvation. Through conflict, the spiritual life is strengthened. Trials well-born will develop steadfastness of character and precious spiritual graces. The perfect fruit of faith, meekness, and love 
often matures best amid storm clouds and darkness. One of my favorite paintings is this painting by Rembrandt titled uh, The Disciples in the Middle of the Sea of Galilee, The Disciples in the Middle of the Sea of Galilee. And early in our experience, um, I drew a lot of strength uh, from, from this portrayal of that um, parable or that, that story in the Gospels. Uh, it, was a, it, was a go- it was a story in the Gospels that, I, that resounded with me and that I read over and over. And if you get a chance um, to, you know, Google this later and go to images, get a high-resolution one and blow it up, I mean, the detail is ac- absolutely spectacular. The colors, uh, the expressions on the faces, I think Rembrandt did a really good job of capturing that biblical story. And uh, so if you'll turn with me to that story in the book of Mark, chapter 4. So if you'll turn with me to Mark, chapter 4, and verse 35. Mark, chapter 4, and verse 35, and we'll read that together. I'll have it up on the screen, too, if you need. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly. And they said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want you to notice in verse 35, this story starts with Jesus' command to go on to the lake, to cross to the other side. He He called them to get into the boat even though he knew a storm was coming. Jesus didn't send them in the boat alone, though. He went with them to ride out the storm by their side. But Jesus soon fell fast asleep, and the disciples found themselves fighting to stay afloat without his aid. Why didn't he wake them up and help them? Didn't he notice that this was a life and death situation? A life and death matter? Why did it seem Jesus did nothing to stop the storm? I'm sure the disciples asked questions similar to these as they frantically scooped water out of their boat and tried to manage the sails, just like we saw in that painting, so well portrayed. Interestingly, the disciples almost lost their confidence in Jesus Yet at the point where they felt most desperate, 
they ran to Jesus, and their pleading for help woke him up, and he calmed the sea, and they exclaimed, who is this man? We can probably already, we can all probably relate to that story. We assume that since we are with Jesus, everything will go well for us, right? And then the storms whip up out of nowhere. We can feel tempted to think that Jesus doesn't really care. We we may ask where God was in such and such a situation or when such and such happened. But this story illustrates that Jesus is always with us in calm seas as well as in the tempest. It also reminds us that as we read earlier, we are not to cast away our confidence and with patience wait for his salvation. One of the attributes that um, has brought us a lot of hope and comfort of God is his faithfulness. God is faithful, and he does not change. And um, as we choose to place our confidence in this God and and trust his love and mercy, we have to trust and believe that he will make all things beautiful in his time. At this point, we've just seen hints of beauty. We haven't seen the full beauty. Um, But I know that it is coming, and I know that it is already in in the works. And so uh, today we're just going to share the hints of beauty that we have seen, and we hope that it encourages you to also look for the beauty in your own trials as well. So you've heard of opposites attract. Um, But that didn't work out in our case. Uh, We're both very similar in most areas, and this has worked out well for us uh, mostly But then uh, when two clean freaks marry each other, they become kind of germophobic. And then when two slightly compulsive people marry, they become neurotic. (laughs) And when two type A planners uh, marry, we get a little too addicted to a schedule and a timetable. And that's the way it is with us. We're very much type A planners. We do things like we get together, like sometimes Saturday night, and we schedule out our week, we plan our week, like where are you going to be when, and you know, all these kinds of things. Um, and we'll go months in advance, you know. Um, sometimes we just really get into it, and we've got <clears throat> everything planned. So anybody else out there like us? In this room, I, probably, I think we're pretty safe to say yes. Um, so then... Uh, you can understand how important it is that those plans that you planned out come to pass exactly as you've planned them. We don't want any, any, deviation. any deviation from the plan. Well, I grew up only 19 months younger than my sister. We were one grade apart in school. We had the same friends. We did the same things. Uh, we had the same interests. And I just loved growing up with this built-in best friend. And so it was part of my plan always growing up to have children and try to reproduce what we had growing up and have children close together in age. So you can imagine how glad we were um, when we found out we were going to have another baby just a few months shy of Savannah turning two. Excuse me. And I also found out that two of my other best friends were having babies within a week of me. So we were very excited because not only, well, were we happy to have a baby, but this was going according to our plan. Not long after I found out I was pregnant, I started having some bleeding. 
and I waited for a few days to see if it would resolve, and when it didn't, I decided to call my doctor. And I assumed my doctor would just say, why don't you just wait until your upcoming scheduled appointment? And I assumed that because that very thing happened to a friend of mine who was also going through some early pregnancy bleeding, and she kept calling her doctor, and they just kept putting her off, like, you have an appointment, just wait, just wait. Um, but I was very blessed that my doctor did not do that. In fact, they sent me for blood work right away. And the same day I went for blood work, I got a call, and they had scheduled a stat ultrasound for that afternoon. Um, I figured that it probably wasn't good. I asked why, and, you know, I was just talking to the MA, and so she couldn't tell me much. She just said that my HCG was high. Well, at this point, I didn't know even really what that HCG existed. Okay, I'll be honest. Um, so I immediately went to Dr. Google and looked up high HCG, and I found out that it could be one of three things, a molar pregnancy, twins, or a baby with a chromosomal abnormality. So I decided to go with twins, right? Well, we went to the ultrasound that afternoon, and there was no baby in my belly. We were told that I'd had a spontaneous miscarriage, and while, of course, we were sad about that, I was glad it wasn't anything more serious. However, I did find it curious that my doctor called me again that day after the ultrasound and wanted me to come talk to her the next morning. I went in to see her, and we found out that I was the lucky 1% of people who get pregnant to have a molar pregnancy. Now, for those few in this room that don't know what a molar pregnancy is, it's when uh, tissue that usually becomes a fetus instead becomes an abnormal growth in your uterus. This growth can grow very quickly, and the best way to monitor that, monitor that growth is by tracking your HCG levels. At my initial draw, my HCG, it's basically your pregnancy hormone. It's a long term that I'm not going to say in front of all of you. Um, so at my initial HCG draw, my HCG was 140,000. Now, in a normal pregnancy, usually, I mean, they can fluctuate a little bit, but when you're at the height of pregnancy, usually your HCG tops off at 100,000. So you can tell for as early on as I was in pregnancy, 140,000 was abnormally high. So you can understand that we were pretty devastated at this point. Um, for many of you, I mean, you, you, sometimes you're going along in life, here's status quo, and you get bad news, and you go this way. Well, we were thinking that we were pregnant, you know, so we're up here. So that drop was even greater, was even steeper, was even more devastating. So at that moment, not only were we introduced to what a molar pregnancy was, but um, we learned that it could turn malignant or metastasize or turn into a neoplasm. Um, and because of this danger, Katie's obstetrician immediately ordered a chest X-ray and a brain MRI to check for metastasis. And this is according to the World Health Organization uh, recommendations. It was kind of a, a standard workup and protocol. And so we were quickly uh, also referred to a gynecologic oncologist. Uh, and the treatment for, the, for a molar pregnancy is a DNC surgery, dilation curatage, to remove the, uh, the molar tissue, and then weekly monitoring of her HCG levels through blood work for the next year. So between my diagnosis and my DNC, the only other symptom I really experienced other than the bleeding was incredible nausea. And it was a week between when I first met with my doctor and learned that I had a molar pregnancy and when I had my DNC. 
And by the time, by the morning of my DNC, they took my HCG again, and it was so high it couldn't even be recorded. It was just, it just said greater than 270,000. Through it all, we were disappointed with this diagnosis, no doubt. Um, but we started to feel positive because after the DNC, my HCG numbers were dropping very rapidly, and we were praising the Lord. However, just three weeks later, I ended up in the emergency room hemorrhaging. And right here, I'd like to pause the story because God's goodness is truly seen in little and big ways. And this happened on a Monday morning. And as most of you know, Stephen is a surgeon and Mondays are his surgery days at the hospital. And he always has a 730 case, but today he didn't. And so he was home when I started hemorrhaging. Another miracle was that my mother answered her cell phone, trying to see if she's in here. Oh. And so she was able to come up and watch Savannah while we sped off to the ER. And it was such a blessing to be close to family during this time. We had recently moved back home um, to where my parents are. And I can't imagine how it would have gone not being close to family. So we learned on our way to the emergency room that my HCG level from a couple days ago, we hadn't heard the results, but it had again spiked. In the emergency room, I was sent for a CT scan to check for metastasis, and right before I was wheeled into the operating room for my second DNC to stop the bleeding, we were given the incredibly bad news that uh, the molar tissue had in fact turned malignant and was seen on CT in my lungs and my liver. So, however, during this shock, um, God blessed us with a wonderful and godly uh, gynecologist. Uh, at such an emotional and scary time. Uh, Katie's gynecologic oncologist uh, that we had seen was over an hour away, and Katie was hemorrhaging briskly. I mean, as a general surgeon, I see hemorrhage all the time. This was hemorrhage. Um, and so we didn't have time to, to get anywhere but uh, eight minutes away where I, where I practice at Sierra Nevada. And um, so I called ahead. They had a bed waiting for Katie. And, um, and then this, this physician met us bedside. And uh, in two months, he was retiring. He was winding down his practice. Uh, wasn't even on that day. He was just finished golfing and spending time with his grandkids and getting ready for the retirement life. But uh, I called him, and he came in right away. And he was just exactly what we needed at this time. He was the perfect combination of like a knowledgeable, capable grandpa. Like he knew what he was doing, but he also really showed care and concern. And it was just exactly what we needed. Um, not only did he pray with us before surgery, but he stood in the OR and held my hand as I fell asleep, which gave so much comfort and courage to me. And looking back, God pads our trials, doesn't he? He really gives us as much hope and comfort through every step that he can. So over the next two days, Katie had more tests and appointments. At this point, we were working with a, a gynecologic oncologist in Sacramento, as I mentioned, and uh, our medical oncologist in Grass Valley, where we live. So the gynecologic oncologist in Sacramento was leading the diagnosis and the treatment at this point, um, and it was calling it gestational trophoblastic neoplasm, or GTN, and staged Katie as high risk. So think stage three or four in the AJCC TNM uh, that, we're, that we're more, staging system that we're more familiar with. 
So this high risk was mainly because of the metastases to her liver um, and as, as seen on the CT scan. So because of this stage, it was highly recommended that she quickly start intensive chemotherapy. Um, and so after consulting with several other uh, trusted physicians uh, and setting up second opinions uh, uh, consult in Stanford, we felt comfortable not wasting any time and aggressively treating this aggressive malignancy. And so two days after um, her cancer diagnosis or the GTN diagnosis, she began, began a regimen called EMACO, uh, which some of you may be familiar with some of the components of that. It's an acronym for um, atopicide, methotrexate, actinomycin D, uh, cyclophosphamide, and vincristine. And so, as some of you know, these are pretty powerful drugs, this five-drug cocktail. Uh, so neither of us were thrilled um, that she would be taking these five potentially you know, harmful drugs. And they had some serious side effects, uh, some immediate, like uh, hair loss, neuropathy, infertility, and then some 20 years down the road, like leukemias. Um, but we are firm believers in evidence-based approaches to medicine using the very best and current scientific evidence. And we wanted a, a scientifically proven methods to fight the cancer so that Katie could have the best chance to stay alive and to raise Savannah. I did determine, though, that I wanted to help my immune system and body as best I could. And so while I did do conventional methods to treat my cancer, I also incorporated evidence-based lifestyle interventions um, to help build up my immune system and have the healthiest body to fight this cancer alongside with the chemotherapy. This was an incredibly scary and dark time for me. Not only did cancer just come out of nowhere, but it seemed like every time we met with another doctor, the news seemed to only get worse. I remember being absolutely terrified to check into the hospital for my first dose of chemotherapy. And um, even when the chemo for, finally went through my veins after being poked six times, um, it was all I could do to keep it together because I didn't have any time to plan any of this. It just came out of nowhere, and I felt so out of control. But we truly felt uplifted through many of your prayers and love. Um, God worked tangibly through so many of you, and we're so very thankful for that. I felt like everything was going so fast, and it was very overwhelming. I don't think we had a ton of time to process all that we were going through. But I do remember telling God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But I don't want to do this without you. Please carry me through. And little did I know how God was working already um, to turn the course of an events in such an amazing way. It was at this time um, that I felt the stories of the, the story of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee was, um, you know, especially relatable to our situation. And um, I'm going to read uh, a quote from The Desire of Ages, page 334. It says, Those hardy fishermen had spent their lives upon the lake and had guided their craft safely through many a storm. But now their strength and skill availed nothing. They were helpless in the grasp of the tempest, and their hope failed them as they saw their boat was filling. And I have to admit that during this experience, I also felt completely powerless. I was supposed to be the man of the household, the house band, the father, 
able to fix any situation for my family. But this was completely out of my control. Ellen White goes on, absorbed in their efforts to save themselves, they had forgotten that Jesus was on board. He trusted in the Father's might. It was in faith, faith in God's love and care that Jesus rested. And the power of that word which stilled the storm was the power of God. And that was my experience. I wanted to fix the situation myself. And only when I was on my knees during prayer, God audibly said to me, those experiences when you have those, wow, that's pretty crystal clear. He said to me, you're not going to be able to handle this one. I'll need complete trust from you and nothing else. Going on, how often the disciples experience is ours when the tempest of temptations gather and the fierce lightnings flash and the waves sweep over us. We battle with the storm alone, forgetting that there is one who can help us. We trust to our own strength till our hope is lost and we are ready to perish. Then we remember Jesus. And if we call upon him to save us, we shall not cry in vain. Hmm. What a promise. Though he sorrowfully reproves our unbelief and self-confidence, he never fails to give us the help we need, whether on the land or on the sea. Hmm. If we have the Savior in our hearts, there is no need for fear. Living faith in the Redeemer will smooth the sea of life and will deliver us from danger in the way that he knows to be best. Amen. All of this happened fairly quickly. It's hard to convey a timeline, but um, not long after this, we had certain twin physician friends, whom some of you might know, who got word of what was going on, and they were not satisfied with our course of action. And so they decided to do a little bit of their own research. And they found that actually there was a center that specialized in gestational trophoblastic neoplasm in Boston, where one of them works. And they actually made a connection with one of the doctors whose name is like one or two on most of the research papers on GTN. And so he amazingly agreed to look at my chart. And um, Upon initial review, he said he didn't think the cancer really was in my liver, and furthermore, he didn't think that I was a high-risk case. <laughs> so if these two facts were true, then Katie wouldn't need the Emico, that five-drug cocktail. In fact, she would only need one of those me medications, the methotrexate. Uh, so when we heard this, we, we, I mean, we couldn't believe it. Um, it seemed almost too good to be true. But at this point, several physicians in Grass Valley and in Sacramento <coughs> excuse me, that were on the case had all concurred that Katie was high risk and had metastasis to her liver and should start chemotherapy as quickly as possible. We had developed a plan. <coughs> Can I get some water? Thanks. <coughs> we had developed a plan. We felt comfortable with the plan, and we had already begun to carry out the plan. Now again, our plan was being upset, and to say the least, 
we were confused. We were so confused. We wanted to believe the Boston doctor, but he was like the lone wolf saying something completely different than what everyone else had been saying. And so we decided to pray. At this point, we had two other second opinion consults set up, one at Stanford and one at Mayo Clinic. And so we decided to pray that our upcoming appointments with these other two um, would agree with what the Boston physician was saying. So we got on our knees, and I prayed first, and I said, you know, Lord, please help everyone to have consensus, all these um, opinions, help them to make sense so that we know which way to go. And then I blurted out, and Lord, please help our doctor here in Sacramento to change his mind to agree with the doctor in Boston. And I did not plan on saying that. In fact, I was shocked that it came out of my mouth because let's face it, doctors don't change their minds, they don't change their treatment plans, and they definitely don't let the patient know that they had made a mistake, right? I can say that because I'm married to one. (laughs) Nevertheless, I had prayed it. And not two days later, not two days later, I was talking to one of our physician friends. And her sister had given my uh, radiology images to a GI radiologist at Harvard. This is someone who looks at pictures of livers all day. And he had said that he was 100% sure there was no liver metastasis. While I was getting this news from her, my doctor in Sacramento texted me and asked us to call him. When Stephen called him, he said he had again reviewed my case with several other colleagues and changed his mind that I did not have liver metastasis, nor was I a high-risk case. Talk about an answer to prayer. What a faith builder. I could not believe that God had me pray a seemingly crazy and impossible prayer only to answer it two days later in such an amazing way. And at this point, I knew that the second opinions were going to agree with the Boston physician. I knew that I was going to be okay, that God's hand was in this, that he was my personal God. And I started a single-agent chemotherapy in December and... or. I did it until December, three months, I was finished, and um, we are very thankful for God's goodness. I mean, this was a crystal clear um, message from the Lord. This is so similar to the disciples' experience. This situation had crescendoed, crescendoed, we think we're alone, we're wondering what's going on, we're confusing, confused, and then he answers the prayer like that. That was God's signature. That was that moment when we had experienced his presence in our lives and in our marriage and with Katie's health in a way that we had never experienced before. It it was incredible. Yes, we're very thankful. And when I think back on these days, um, we do remember the heartache and sadness, but we also remember God's goodness. And I wanted to share a couple of the things that really stand out in my mind. Um, Like I said before, they had trouble finding my vein for my first dose of chemotherapy. And the vein they did eventually find didn't last through my whole dose of all all the medications I needed. So we decided after that first dose that I should have a porticath placed um, for future chemo doses. Well, all of this changed before I ever had another dose of Emico. And I changed to methotrexate, which was actually... um, administered intramuscularly. And so when I found out that my new chemo was going to be a shot in the arm, I, to be honest, I really had trouble that I was really struggling with the fact that I had a porticath placed because now I had three ugly scars in a very visible place that I had to see every day that I didn't really 
need to have. Um, my portacath was actually used for just two doses of iron to help me feel better after my hemorrhage and for blood draws, but we never actually used it for chemo. And so one day I was struggling. I, was, I, I feel tempted to get angry and discouraged about that. And God clearly said, Katie, those scars are your Ebenezer. And what a beautiful thought. Every day I see those scars, and every day I have a visual reminder that God is good and that he is faithful. My chemo uh, regimen didn't have a set end date. It was very much controlled by my HCG levels. So once my HCG got back into the normal range, I would have three more uh, doses or cycles of chemotherapy, and then I would be done. So you can imagine every weekly draw, I would always calculate and see when I would be done with chemo. And on my 30th birthday last year, my HCG was three. I was pretty disappointed because I thought it had to be two or below to be considered normal. So at that point, I calculated that I would be finished on Christmas Day. So I went in. My chemo uh, cycles were every other day for a week, and then I'd have a week off, and that was a complete cycle. So I went in the week before Christmas for my last one of that week, and my oncologist came out and said, Congratulations, this is your last dose. And I just sat there and I argued with him because I, you know, that wasn't my calculations. And then I went home and I checked with Stephen and we checked with our Boston physician who graciously um, answered every email um, whenever we had a question. And they all agreed that I was done with chemo because I had to be five or below, not two or below. And so I just thought that was very sweet of the Lord to even give me Christmas off. He is so good in many ways. It's hard to believe that this all happened a year ago. Sometimes it feels like just yesterday, and sometimes it does feel like a lifetime ago. Um, yet our story does not end here. Stephen and I were anxious to give Savannah a sibling. And as the one-year mark approached, we had uh, many discussions about the timing of it all. When we originally heard we had to wait for an entire year to try again, after the initial disappointment, we probably thought, from a medical standpoint, um, it was good to let my body rest and recover. We had no idea um, how much time we would need to recover emotionally. Um, the fear of relapse before every monthly blood draw would cause physical distress in me, even though you don't maybe aren't conscious of the fear. It, it definitely manifested itself physically. And every time we discussed growing our family or trying again, um, emotions would become very very raw and very real. So we decided to pray that God would give us peace about this. So in August, I went for my monthly lab draw, but in July, um, all of our local labs had switched to Quest Diagnostics. And so when I went in, I usually have a, a standing order from my oncologist, but they didn't have it anymore. And I had been there for an hour already by the time they called me up, and they only had an order from my oncologist, my gynecologic oncologist in Sacramento. And so I said, just use that one and draw my blood. And so a couple days later, he called me, and I didn't have my phone with me, so he left a voicemail, and my numbers were good again. And for another month, we praised the Lord. And then he called me again the next day, and I was uh, with my phone this time, and, and we had a little discussion, and... Then he said, on his own accord, he just offered this up. He said, you know, you know, I know it's not quite a year yet, but at this point, it's very rare for the cancer to come back. So if you'd like to start trying again, go ahead. 
And it took me a while to realize, wow, maybe that was God answering our prayer because I didn't ask him that. And he called me twice to get a hold of me to offer up that information. And so on the one-year anniversary of finding out I had cancer invading my body, I found out that I was pregnant. Thankful and yet fearful, we made a plan with my obstetrician and started following my HCG every 48 hours and scheduled several upcoming ultrasounds. Within a week, my HCG started dropping and my body started the process of miscarriage. Not many days later, my HCG plateaued and my body stopped the process of miscarriage. And to complicate matters, my ultrasound started looking eerily similar to my molar ultrasound the year before. And for me, this was the real test of faith. This is the real test of faith. Yes, last year I was blindsided with a horrible diagnosis when all I wanted was a baby. But clinging to the promises of God and the love of family and friends, I rode out the storm and God brought peace. And when the storm was calmed, I was then asked several times to recount of God's goodness and faithfulness, how he spared me the awful chemotherapy drugs, how my prognosis jumped from 70% to 97%, how he answered prayers in such amazing ways. I repeated over and over again that God was good and that God was faithful. And I, I think subconsciously I thought I would be like Job, who also went through trial but was blessed doubly in the end. But here I was, staring at the possibility of a second molar pregnancy. God was not blessing me with a healthy baby. God was not blessing me with what I thought he should have or would have. God was blessing me with an opportunity to seal the lessons I had learned the year before. At this point, I was tempted to spiral to a despair deeper than the year before, but I had a recent experience with God's faithfulness that would not allow me to go there. And so it was here that I had to again lay down my preconceived ideas of who God is and how he works and where the desires of my heart fit in. It was at this time that I had to practice surrender and waiting on God like I never had before. I now had the opportunity to place my full confidence in God, a faithful God who had not changed from last year and would continue to be faithful to me. And I was also blessed with perspective from a book called The Insanity of God. I was so excited when I came here and realized that every registrant is going home with this book. And I encourage you, if you haven't read it, please read it. Several days after my initial uh, cancer diagnosis, we already had plans to see this documentary of this book. And it was so life-changing. And so um, a couple weeks before all of this recent thing happened... Um, Stephen saw this book on Amazon or something and decided to order it for me. And at first I was kind of disappointed because I'd already watched the documentary and I thought I knew, you know, the storyline and that it would be redundant. But I was so, so wrong. 
Looking back, God really knew what he was doing when he, tempted, when he prompted Stephen um, to buy this book for me. And I read this book as all of this, what I just described to you, was happening. And every time I was tempted to feel sorry for myself or tell God that this was too much to bear or that my life was so hard, my mind immediately went to the stories in this book. And I was reminded that my trial truly was a light affliction and thanked God for being so gentle. The Insanity of God is written by a missionary who worked for several years, 15 years, I think, in Africa and several years in Somalia. And he became so disheartened at the evil that existed there, especially when an entire generation of believers was um, annihilated in one day. And this led him on an extensive research mission as he visited countries and churches in highly persecuted and repressive areas of the world to understand how Jesus works in places where it seems that only evil dwells. The first place he visited was Russia, and one of the stories he chronicles struck a deep chord inside of me that resonated with what I have currently been struggling with, and I'd like to share it with you. One pastor was arrested and placed in prison. While his wife and children were sent to live or die in Siberia, one wintry night in their remote, dilapidated wooden cabin, which now served as their home, the three children divided their family's last crust of bread and drank the last cup of tea in the house before climbing into bed still hungry. Kneeling to say their prayers, they asked, Where are we going to get some more food, Mama? We're hungry. Do you think Papa even knows where we live now? Their mother assured them that their heavenly father knew where they were, and for now he was the only one that would have to provide. They prayed and asked for God's provision. Thirty kilometers away, in the middle of the night, God woke up the deacon of a church and instructed him, Get out of bed, harness your horse, hitch the horse to the sled, load up all the extra vegetables that the church has harvested, the meat and the other food that the congregation has collected, and take it to that pastor's family living outside the village. They are hungry. The deacon said, But Lord, I can't do that. It's below zero outside. My horse might freeze, and I might freeze. The Holy Spirit told him, you must go. The pastor's family is in trouble. The man argued, Lord, you've got to know that there are wolves everywhere. They could eat my horse, and if they do, then they'll eat me. I'll never make it back. But the deacon said that the Holy Spirit told him, you don't have to come back. You just have to go. I mentioned in the beginning that we often focus on parts of the Bible that tell us of a God who keeps his promises, promises that tell us we will have the desires of our hearts, promises of good and perfect gifts, promises that disease and pestilence will not come near us. But what happens when God doesn't seem to fulfill these promises? What if God tells us to go without promising a safe return? What if we find ourselves with a disease that's end is death? What if the gifts God gives us are only presented through trial and heartache and disappointment? What if God asks of us more than we are willing to give? I am learning that it's not about whether or not God fulfills the desires of my heart. My life is not about everything working according to my plan. My life isn't even about building a perfect little family and making me happy. 
My life is about following where God leads. Without being promised a safe return, even to the valley of the shadow of death. My life is a continual, daily, hourly surrender of my will to his. Is this easy? Not at all. Is it pleasurable? No. It's incredibly hard and it hurts. But is it what I need to be called higher? To abide deeper and to trust more fully? Yes, yes, and yes. I wish that we had a conclusion to our story that we could share with you today. But unfortunately, my immediate future is still uncertain. And while we don't know how our story will end, we serve a God who does. And this God does not make mistakes. He could have prevented all of this. He could have, but he didn't. And because he didn't, I know that this is for my good and maybe even for someone else's. And for that, I praise him, because I know when I get to heaven, I'll look back and realize that everything I went through here on earth was worth it. Paul says in Romans 5, But we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And this hope will not disappoint In a world full of disappointment, God promises us a hope that will not let us down. In fact, Hebrews 6 tells us that this hope is an anchor to our souls that leads us to the very presence of God. This hope lifts our eyes from the dismal disappointments of this world and refocuses our perspective on a world where there will be no more sorrow, no more loss, no more heartache, where our plans will be God's plans and the desires of our hearts will be his desires. And this hope we can cherish no matter what we walk through as we wait on the salvation of God and place our full confidence in his leading. And this morning, I actually, God gave me a quote that brought so much comfort. I threw it in here. I wanted to share it with you from um, Prophets and Kings. It says, hope and courage are essential to perfect service for God. These are the fruit of faith. Despondency is sinful and unreasonable. God is able and willing more abundantly to bestow upon his servants the strength they need for test and trial. The plans of the enemies of his work may seem to be well laid and firmly established, but God can overthrow the strongest of these. And this he does in his own time and way when he sees that the faith of his servants has been sufficiently tested. In the darkest days, when appearances seem most forbidding, fear not. Have faith in God. He knows your need. He has all power. His infinite love and compassion never weary. Fear not that he will fail of fulfilling his promise. He is eternal truth. Never will he change the covenant he has made with those who love him. And he will bestow upon his faithful servants the measure of efficiency that their need demands. So, as Katie mentioned, we realized at this point that God hadn't changed from last year. He was still faithful. 
And as we were given another opportunity to trust him in an uncertain future based on his faithfulness in the past, we really determined to surrender our worries and our fears completely to God, placing our full confidence in his perfect will and timing. We reminded each other that this was none of our doing. And if God saw fit to allow this in our lives, then we had to depend entirely on him to see us through. If God brought this into our lives, it was his responsibility to help us through it. And in fact, that's what he wanted from us. I'll read a quote to you from Review and Herald, 1894. It says, trials are essential. What was that word? Essential. Essential. In order that we may be brought close to our Heavenly Father in submission to his will that we may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. God's work of refining and purifying the soul must go on until his servants are so humbled, so dead to self, that when called into active service, they may have an eye single to the glory of God. Wow. The Lord brings his children over the what? Same ground again and again. Increasing the what? The pressure until perfect humility fills the mind and the character is transformed. Then they are victorious over self and in harmony with Christ and the Spirit of Heaven. She goes on to say, it is by close, testing trials that God brings his people near to himself. For in trial and temptation, he discovers to them their weaknesses and teaches them to lean upon him as their their only help and safeguard. When this result is attained, his object is accomplished, and his tried servants are prepared to be used in every emergency to fill important positions of trust and to accomplish the grand purposes for which their powers were given them. God takes men upon trial, and he proves them upon the right hand, and upon the left, until they are educated, trained, and disciplined for his use. And doesn't that sound like the story that Katie and I have shared this morning, our testimony? And the the church deacon in Siberia, our lives are to be strictly for God's use. We are called to follow where he leads, no matter the consequences or the outcome. And something we learned through this in our experience was an answer to prayer. We all pray, Lord, we want to be close to you. <laughs> Do you want to be close to Jesus? You will go through trials. Do you want to know your own heart, every nook and cranny of your own deceptive heart? Go through trials and lean on Jesus and lean 
hard. And at the end, you'll be able to answer this question. Who is this man that calms the winds and the waves? There's a similar story to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. The story of Jonah. Jonah also claimed he was a follower of Jehovah. But he didn't weather the storm as well as the disciples. He sought death in the sea as a way to stop the storm. But all was not lost. The Lord had mercy on Jonah, and he eventually learned the lessons as he shares with us in Jonah, the book of Jonah chapter 2, which I think are some of the most comforting words that are found in all the scripture to those going through trials. Here it is on the screen, or you can follow along. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah onto dry land. So, how is it with you this morning? Are you going through trials? Do you feel the waves and the wind? Do you question if Jesus cares or if he'll even save you? Are you feeling overwhelmed and in distress? Get to know the man Jesus. Trust him to find the solution to calm the storms in your life. You know, I believe that Jesus is coming soon. And I believe that his trials have to be more severe because of the shortness of time. And the Lord knows what each one of you need. He has your salvation at the forefront of his mind. And so if it's your desire to say to God, Lord, I want to know who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey him. I would just invite you to bow your heads with me. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. 
And Lord, some of us are struggling with trials, temptations. We feel overwhelmed. And we feel like we have been called to go without the promise of a safe return. And Father, we know that you are coming quickly. You are coming soon. We see it all around us. We see it in our patients' lives. We see it in the the news. We see it in our own lives. There is a sense of urgency. And Father, like no other time in earth's history, in no other time in our own individual lives, do we need to know who is this man? Father, it's, it's our desire to know you in a new way. But we know that we are not ready to handle the waves that are beating against the ships of our lives and that we need you. And so, Father, we just pray in a very special way for each attending here, for each that may hear our voice, that if that's the case, we, we want to lift our hearts to you and say, Father, we don't know how that's going to go, but we recognize the emergency of the times, that we need to be close to you. And so, Father, answer that prayer. Father, sustain those who may be called to go through trials and give them that hope that Paul talks about in Romans 5. And so, Father, as we go from this place, we pray that you would continue to bless our Sabbath service, continue to bless each one here, the families that are represented, to fully trust in you and to know you and so that we can lift our hearts to your temple and to say, you have answered us and you have brought salvation to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.